0: Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. This is a teaching ministry that is called to rightly divide the Word of God for the people of God. And today we are going to pick up in Session 7, verse number 18. Last time, you'll remember, we were in uh, Session 6, and we looked closely at verses 14 through 17, and we talked, we took another verse at verse 10 before we started moving forward regarding the fulfillment of times and what that was, and Paul's specific prayer for the Ephesian believers. Uh, But today, uh, we're going to pick up in verse number 18. You can see there verses 15 through 17. uh, That's uh, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. uh, And he said that he ceased not to give thanks and mention of them in their prayers, Number one, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And then we see here in verse number 18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So Paul's prayer that he prayed for the ones who had faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints in verse 15 was that through the knowledge of God they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that the eyes of their that their eyes would be opened to the hope of his calling and to the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So His first prayer is that they would be enlightened to know what is the hope of his calling. Notice that it says his calling, not our calling. A lot of times this is one of those verses where I see people just kind of read through it and then turn around and say it's talking about our calling, our personal calling. No, it's talking about his calling, not ours. Many times we miss that. Bullinger says that his calling is our sonship. So the calling that he's talking about there is our sonship. You'll remember back in verses 4 and 5, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, According to the good pleasure of his will. So his calling is talking about our being chosen, our, you know, our sonship. And we talked about that. We're predestinated unto the adoption. And then in Ephesians chapter four, in verse number four, this is mentioned again, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called. So we're called in one hope of our calling. So. I believe that kind of dovetails. Barnes says the meaning here is that it would be an inestimable, inestimable, inestimable privilege to be made fully acquainted with the benefits of the Christian hope and to be permitted to fully, to understand fully what Christians have a right to expect in the world of glory. This is the first thing which the apostle desires that they should fully understand. So his calling seems to not only include our sonship, but also everything that comes along with that, the adoption and the riches of his inheritance in the saints. David Gusick says that it is a future that includes resurrection, eternal life, freedom from sin, perfected justification, and glorious elevation. So that is God's calling for us, and Paul wants us to know this. To know God is the key to the highest form of knowledge. You know, the writer of Proverbs says that it begins with the fear of the Lord. Um, in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What's that saying? If you don't fear God, you're never going to know knowledge, and you'll never know wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 1.29, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. If you want knowledge, you got to fear God. In Proverbs 2, verses 2 through 5, So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and applying thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding. But how are you going to get that? Well, he says right there, If you will receive my words, and you will hide my commandments with thee, that's the only way you're going to get knowledge pretty much explains the complete ignorance in our culture today and the abject failure of our education system. I'm telling you something, guys. I visit college campuses for a living. Um, For the most part, they are woke. Um, They are left-leaning. They are led by spineless um, administrators who kowtow uh, to the progressive left. Um, if you want to do some history study, you need to go back and read about the Frankfurt School, the Frankfurt School. They learned a long time ago that if you want to change the United States, it's not going to be top-down. It's going to be bottom-up. And the whole one of the goals of the Frankfurt School was to get their left-wing, progressive, socialistic, communistic teachings into the school system. And the way to do that was to get into the universities first. And if you can get into the universities, the graduates will take their poison down to the preschoolers and it will permeate elementary, middle, and secondary education. And that, my friend, has come full cycle. Their ideology that began in the universities, has now worked its way. I'm talking K-3 (laughs) all the way through 12th grade. And these young people have permeated the education system after they graduate, the churches, theology, government. They are in charge. And those of us who, you know, people, Xers, Boomers, whatever they are, Um, you know, we're up there for retirement. I mean, we've kind of come out of that system. I still got a few years to go, but right now, our, the Frankfurt School has been very successful from the bottom up. And that's what you see. So when you, when I walk on these college campuses and the sad thing is that parents, Are delivering their children to these schools on a platter. Um, you know, and the amazing thing, I'm, I come from a world of Christian education, K through 12. I mean, people will literally spend thousands of dollars to send their children through a, through a private Christian school to, to protect them from the public education system. And then they will turn around and hand them to the universities and the colleges, which is going to do far more worse on them than certainly K through 12th grade could have done to them. Because at least K through 12th grade, they were in their parents' home. The parents can counter what was going on, but they mailed them off to these universities. You know, and that's what I see. You know, and then I hear Christians bragging about my kid went to this school. I'm I'm really pretty sorry to hear that, to be honest with you. Um, sad. Uh, The there is no knowledge without the fear of the Lord. It's just an endless cycle of illiteracy. They refuse to believe in God. They're not only they're not anti God. They hate God. And it is, it is all through our school system now. Uh, I don't, I really do not think it is salvageable. Personally, I I don't think it's salvageable. The best thing you can do for your child, in my humble opinion, is to homeschool them. And the only reason. They should be going to a four-year liberal arts college as if they are going to be majoring in a STEM field. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a lawyer, something that's going to require that level of education. Otherwise, they need to go to a tech school, a trade school. They need to go to a small business college, a little two-year degree. Um, I think it's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of money. Um, they're clearly graduating without knowledge. Because they have no fear of the Lord. Then notice in verse number 19, I'll get off that soapbox. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? That's us. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. That's one of those old words, wrought, bought, taught. And they all come from, you know, that, that age of language. It's a uh, past tense for work, which he wrought in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in heavenly places, so his prayer continues in that he wants us to know God's exceeding greatness of His power that He wrought in Christ when He raised him from the dead and set him at His right hand in heavenly places, or uh, more accurately, in the Heavenlies, because if you look back, let's see, let's look at that that verse in the old King James um, chapter one and uh, verse nineteen. You can see here in verse nineteen, seeing see it in greatless, greatless, there it is, in verse 20, which he wrought, which he brought about, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly. Notice places is italicized. So it literally means in the heavenlies. Um, so that's his prayer, that his greatness can be found in what he brought about in Christ by raising him from the dead and setting him at his right hand. And he wants us to know that kind of power. Now, how can we know that kind of power? Does that talk about us going out and performing miracles? Or is it just to know that God can do exceedingly abundantly above above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, as he will say when we get down into Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 20. He wants us to know that the same God that did all of that that raised Christ from the dead, seated in him at his right hand in the heavenlies, is working on our behalf today. That's what he wants us to know. The same God that raised Christ from the dead is working in and through our lives. And he will expand on this when he gets over in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. F.F. Bruce said of this, if the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power. And then notice also in this verse that God, after he raised Christ from the dead, set him at his own right hand. The right hand is the position of honor. Um, Peter And 1 Peter 3.22 says, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Uh, Clark adds that the right hand is historically the place of not only honor, but also friendship, confidence, and authority. And then back to that word, those words, heavenly places or in the heavenlies, as we said here in verse uh, 20. Um, Four times that word is used, and it's here in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, or in the heavenlies, in Christ. Ephesians 2.6, and hath raised us up together and made us to set in the heavenlies, heavenly places in Christ. And then Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenlies, or heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Paul's point is that we who are in Christ are in the heavenlies. We are in heavenly places. And understand that our promises as the body of Christ are celestial, while those made to Israel are terrestrial. One is heavenly, one is earthly. The promises that are made to us as the body of Christ are celestial. We are in the heavenlies, we are placed there. Our promises pertain to that. Israel's is on earth, it's terrestrial. And we get in trouble when we start, or we begin to not rightly divide between the body of Christ and the nation of Israel. And, of course, today what we have done in Reformed theology um, is we have combined the two. The church is now Israel. So it's all one and the same. We are not them, and they are not us. Uh, And that's why I really focus on that word rightly dividing. There is. If it can be, if we are encouraged to rightly divide, then it means that we can wrongly divide. And then notice he has been placed far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. He mentions these principalities and powers three times in this letter. Um, these are referring to angelic beings, both good and bad. And the statement also seems to be referring to a ranking system that we just don't understand. We, we're, we don't know. I mean, there's principalities, there's powers. I've read whole books on it, but we don't know. It's speculation. But it is talking about these angelic beings. But what is clear is that Jesus has been raised above them. That's the most important thing. He has been raised above them. One commentator said, we do not need to know the difference. Well, we do not need to know all the officers of the king's court to know who the king is. Um, We know who the king is. I don't know who all the stooges are around him, but I do know who the king is. And that's the important thing. And in verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. As such, all things are under his feet. This means that all things are in subjection to Christ. And of course, one day it will be subdued completely. I mean, obviously, the chaos in the world, you know, those people that say that we are living in the millennial reign of Christ and Satan is locked in the abyss, well, he's got one heck of a long chain, if that's the case, because this is a wicked world that we live in right now. But one day, it will be completely subdued. We are in the time of postponement. And that means a lot of things. I mean, it means that Christ is still in charge. He's still in control. But he is still allowing us to kind of do what we want to do. But one day, it'll be completely subdued. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is God. Uh, It'll be subdued completely. Uh, You know, Proverbs, uh, the book of Psalms talks about this. In Psalms 2, 6, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill in Zion, and I will declare the degree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And all through the book of Revelation, Revelation nineteen fifteen, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. With it he would smite the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So he hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Notice the words that are in italics in this verse, verse 22. This is interesting. Um, is it verse 22? I'm sorry. Head of all things. Um, wow, I'm moving along pretty good, aren't I? Uh, verse 22 uh, I just need to get back to Ephesians chapter one. Uh, I'm all the way in the book of Psalms. Um, there we go. And notice here in verse number 22, look at all the words that are italicized there. Things, to be, things. Um, so if you, if you remove the italics, it would say, and hath put all under his feet and gave him the head over all to the church. Gave him the head over to all, the head over all to the church. Clearly states that he is the head of the church. The church is the mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, and Christ is the head of that church. He's not the groomsman, as many say. He is not going to marry his own body, okay? And I'll speak to this more later, but for the moment, the words bride of Christ are nowhere to be found in your Bible, at least not in my King James. Um, Those words are not there. The Bible makes it perfectly clear in Revelation 21 and verse number two that the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is the bride. In Revelation 21, verse number two, Look at verse one, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed over, and there was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you can just keep reading about that. I mean, um, it's not, the, the body of Christ is not the bride, but we'll talk about that later. If you need further evidence, just read the next verse, the last verse of Ephesians chapter number 1 and uh, verse number 23. Let's get back to that real quick right here. Notice that comma, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, comma, which is his body. The church is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. Or all in all. Well, God bless you guys. Next time we get together, we'll pick up in chapter number two. And I hope you're well. Remember, he loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for our good.